Sage's Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Sage's Stories, the official podcast of Sage's, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show. Well, it seems like 2023 is moving right along as we are about to share our third episode of the year and the 16th episode of Sage's Stories, mm-hmm. where we shine the light on some of Sage's most impactful leaders. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kevin Hayek, back in Cleveland this time. Back in Cleveland, but not for long. I heard you're making a trip back to California soon. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, people are going to start wondering if you want to consider to move back to well, not back to come to uh, California, Mr. Kevin from Cleveland. Uh, don't, don't get your hopes up. It's just travel season. Okay. Well, it was truly lovely having you uh, in Los Angeles. And next time, I hope you stay a bit longer so I can show you our beautiful little quaint town. I would love that. Anyway, I am your co-host, Dr. Sharin Tofai, who does not feel the need to travel all too often, though we will both be in Montreal at the end of March for the annual stages meeting. I hope many of you listeners also join us and come by and say hi. Indeed, and we will hopefully run into today's guest on Sage's Stories, another up and coming star of the society, Dr. Shanita Johnson. Shanita is currently the interim chairman of the Department of Surgery and Professor of Surgery at Morehouse School of Medicine, Atlanta, Georgia. She wears uh, several additional hats, including program director for the Department of Surgery, chair-elect of the Faculty Senate, and senior fellow of Global Health Equity at the Satcher Health Leadership Institute. Wow, uh, that is enough work for like six surgeons at least. Yeah. Uh, I do have to share one f- quick fact about Dr. David Satcher, Sharon. Uh, what is that? So- after graduating from Morehouse College in 1963, guess where he went to medical school? Oh, let me guess, somewhere northwest of Georgia? That's right, Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, right here in Cleveland, Ohio. Of course. And I think we might hear that come up again here as we listen to Shanita, but we'll let her share that story. So with that lengthy intro, welcome to Sage's Stories, uh, Shanita. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this time with you today and to uh, share my story and delve a little bit more into Sages. I'm excited to be here. Yes, welcome. We are very excited to have you. You know, you've been on our list of potential guests for quite a while, but given that you are doing so much here and around the world, of course, it's no surprise that It took a little bit longer than usual to get you on our show, but we really appreciate the time that you're providing us. You know, it was our soon-to-be president and past guest of our podcast, Dr. Pat Silla, who recommended you. And uh, I know she'll be listening intently with the rest of us to have you share your story. Great. She's quite an inspiring leader. Yes. And I'm looking forward to her presidency. Yeah, we all are. Mm -hmm. So to start, we'd love to hear uh, some highlights of the beginning of your story. Where did you grow up and uh, what were some impactful moments along your journey? 
Yeah, so I grew up in the islands of the Bahamas. I'm originally from Nassau, Bahamas, which is where I spent my childhood years before coming to the States for college. Um, I did spend some time in Cleveland, but before I got to Cleveland, I spent time in Baltimore <laughs> and in Southern California, Washington, D.C., before doing, mm -hmm, before doing my uh, fellowship in MIS and bariatrics at the Cleveland Clinic. So yes, I've spent some time traveling from city to city. And now I'm here in Atlanta where I've settled here for the past decade or more um, in the Atlanta area and I uh, really feel like it's home. And did you have physicians or even surgeons in your family or how did you decide you wanted to be a surgeon? You know, it's a good question. I knew very early I wanted to do medicine. I did not have any body in medicine in my family. I read extensively and uh, was very good in science. And as I went through my journey, I knew that surgery was for me, even though folks felt like I should do pediatrics or OBGYN. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe I'd smile too much for surgery. Um, <laughs> <but> certainly, uh, <laughs> surgery was the place for me. Uh, I was not to be swayed. Uh, and so... I actually thought I would do neurosurgery before I settled into minimally invasive and bariatric surgery, which I'm so happy that I did choose as my specialty um, to specialize in. So many of our <clears throat> listeners, um, some are Sages members, some are um, patients. I have a patient who, who follows, and I think it's helpful for, they've kind of learned as we've done these, that that a, a journey often kind of goes with uh various pathways. And this one uh, starts with general surgery, uh, general surgery residency for, for five years, and then an, an ultimate uh, decision in on your behalf that you made to, to go into minimally invasive surgery and bariatric surgery. So that's a very, uh, it's a great field. It's a, a, a growing field. What made you decide to go into that field? So that was in the kind of mid 2000s. Mm -hmm. You know, I loved laparoscopy. I mean, I got into every minimally invasive case that I could in residency. Um, I just enjoyed the complexity of those cases. And then I think the, the icing on the cake was your patients, especially in bariatric surgery and really giving folks an, a chance at life again and a, and a better quality of life. And uh, you can't get tired of folks changing their lives, having babies, changing jobs, new careers, becoming personal trainers, running marathons when they never thought they could. Right. You know, so that chance to change their lives in many different ways to put diseases into remission um, was definitely the hook. And then I love being in the OR like we all do. Mm -hmm. You know, that's my uh, zen. So uh, I love those cases. Uh, I enjoy doing them. I enjoy teaching them. Uh, so certainly once I started down the, that road, there was no turning back. That's great. Yeah. One follow-up question. When you were at the Cleveland Clinic, which I think was 2007, 2008, who was your favorite second year general surgery resident to sign out <laughs> to at night? Oh, I think there was oh, someone boy. there by the name of Kevin, if oh, I remember correctly, you know. That's amazing. <laughs> Yes, I remember, you know, he was quite bright eyed and he was energetic. <laughs> Kevin, I'm not yes, even going to call you Kevin anymore. We're going to call no. you the Fisher. No, 
Okay. We just fish for compliments on this podcast. <laughs> That's all I do. I just find. <laughs> we may have to delve into that further. Kevin, the Fisher L. Hayek. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's get back uh, on track I here. I remember some good times on that. Yeah, show. I do too. Yeah. I, I think we had some really, we had a floor and uh, the bariatric floor. It was really coming into its own. And, and obviously that was the beginning of Dr. Shower's time. Uh, mm-hmm. So he was building that program and um, yeah, it was, uh, you were definitely one of the most impactful fellows. And I would Aww. agree that most, uh, m- most of the time you were smiling. I remember that. And you were probably, I agree with a lot of the people who, who, uh, told you you were a smiley person. Cause you were always so kind. And I think you're very impressionable as a resident, uh, in a, especially early on. And, and you were really, the, the one thing I remember was just your kindness. So I, I, that that carried on for many years, obviously. Oh, that's really you, sweet, man. Kevin. You know, I feel that residency is such, a, it's like a little, um, one of my friends told me that the friends and people that you meet during residency will be your closest because you share so much in such an intimate kind of high stress, mm-hmm. you know, tired fatigued way that you share the experiences together there's no greater bond for any kind of job than you'd get during residency yeah you're definitely in the trenches together yeah and for many years you know so you develop that bond very strong and I would say the comment that Kevin made about you what you do as a resident whether it's your first year your senior year and how you portray yourself how you treat others carries on so you know Mm -hmm. kevin still remembers how impactful you were to him um when he was you know just a second year resident and that carries on i'm sure uh in your success as well i try to remember that as i'm training residents now Mm -hmm. you know that that's such an impactful period as you said kevin you know you're trying to do your best and you're trying to learn so much at the same time, it's a very tough period, actually. Um, and do you know, at the end of this, you are, you're going to be an attending. So you're gaining as much experience as you can in sort of yeah. a high stress environment. So, you know, treating each other with kindness and making the time enjoyable is important. It is a not easy to do. It is a very challenging in this field to, to do that. I know that many try and many fail. I'm probably on more of the failing side uh, mm-hmm. in that regard. I think some of us are are not conditioned to maybe be as, as soft and gentle, um, but uh, I think it's something we must strive to do continually because as you said, the residency is so hard. It's just so difficult. Yeah. So Shanita, after fellowship, you still stayed in Ohio for a couple of years. Is that right? I did. I stayed in Ohio just outside of Toledo for a couple of years before I made my way down to Atlanta. And while I was there, I started a bariatric program for mm. gut. And so, and that was really a great time to expand as a physician, as a young physician, and really rely on the skills that I had attained and know that, have confidence that those skills were excellent. Um, so I gained a lot of confidence in that two years that I spent there um, developing these programs before moving to Atlanta. Yeah, yeah I mean, so, Ohio is amazing, right, Kevin? I mean, who could blame you? Right. 
Why only two years? Especially, yes, yeah, North North Ohio, right on the water. It's always really frigid and, and they feel yeah. that coldness coming across, especially if you're from the Bahamas. I'm sure that must have been so yes. like uh, just really refreshing to Yeah, to the feel. beaches of Bahamas and the beaches yeah. of Ohio, it's I the mean, same. Just like it's same, same. Insane. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Year round. <laughs> yeah, so you started... Uh, uh, I know that the product of the bariatric fellowship was to really start programs. Uh, that was really what they wanted you to do going out. And, and so you got to do that um, in two places. How did that help sort of shape you as you decided on what seems like the, the, the migration back to warmer climate, if you will? <laughs> I think it taught me leadership, you know, and team management, which is really important, how to build a team and have that team work effectively together and enjoy working together and achieve a goal, um, you know, how to set up regular meetings and, you know, a, a shared vision. I learned that really early on. So I think that was very, very helpful. And I think that's the main lesson that I learned while I was there, if I were to look back. And I've used that sense to develop other programs, you know, as I've continued in my career. But in those early years, I was really beginning my leadership style and my team development style and, and learning what works and doesn't work uh, moving forward. So it was really, really crucial uh, to be there during that time and to build those skills and develop relationships during that time. How are those programs doing now? Do you keep keep up with any of the the people that stayed back? And I do. Yeah, how are those programs going? They are they are flourishing. That's great. Um, so the two the first two programs that I built are doing well. They are um, accredited and comprehensive centers. So, um, in fact, one of my junior residents is now leading the second program as a medical director. I'm very wow. proud of her. Yeah. Who is that? Dr. Carlina Tuggle. Excellent. Yes, Great. So I'm very excited about that. I'm very proud of her uh, for what she's doing. So you moved eventually to Atlanta where you are now. And it, is it right that you were at uh, Emory first and then moved to Morehouse? Is that when I looked at your I CV? Or? Yeah, I was oh, affiliated, affiliated with okay. Emory before okay. I moved to Morehouse and I moved to Morehouse to play a bigger role in education and so I came there wanting to be involved in the educational program I had been doing some uh, work with residents and PA students before and really wanted to have a bigger role and a bigger impact and so that prompted me to make that move to Morehouse and uh then I, I jumped in with both feet. So I was uh, the associate program director, but I've been the program director now for the past three years. That's amazing. I'm very curious to know your schedule. I mean, Kevin didn't even mention half of what you do, and I'm already blown away, chair and program director and mm -hmm. faculty senate, et cetera. So perhaps you can tell us, because I'd like to learn from you. Um, what is your schedule like? How much clinical activity do you take on in the OR? How much of it is direct education, like in the Sim Center? And then how much administrative work, you know, as program director and chairman? That's, uh, that's like amazing. When do you sleep? 
you know, who's helping you? Do you have like multiple assistants who, who protect your calendar? I feel like I should be taking notes. I'm going to take notes too. <laughs> well, I'll start with the team. I think the team is so important. Um, the resident residency team that I have is extremely strong. Uh, the administrators are very, very strong. Um, the schedules are very tight. Our curriculums are very robust. Uh, and that is very, very crucial, you know, to have that. And then on the chair side, again, I have very strong administrators. My department administrator um, that's running the business side with me, very, very strong. We meet probably daily. We speak over the phone several times a day um, to make sure that the department is running well. We're recruiting heavily right now, which is uh, certainly um, going to take more administrative time mm -hmm. at this point. So my administrative time is a bit heavier than it'll probably be later on because of the amount of recruitment that we're doing. And also this is residency interview and ranking season as well. So both both jobs are, are sort of in a, a high stress time right now. Um, mm -hmm. But my clinical time is about 40% clinical time. And then uh, the rest of the time, admin, teaching, um, research, work with the Health Leadership Institute, and so on. And is your practice still mainly bariatric, or do you cover general surgery? How does that, how, what's your clinical activity like? It's mainly like bariatric, mainly bariatrics, but I do general surgery clinic and general surgery call. I, I do like the mix. So You take call too? Oh my God. I do. Oh, wow. <laughs> I do, um, you know, so I do like the mix. So, uh, and then I, I want to teach the residents as well uh, with different cases. So that, that keeps me involved with them. How have you seen uh, bariatrics change since you did your fellowship? You know, when I did my fellowship, we did mostly uh, bypasses and our revisions were around the band. I think that mm -hmm. that hasn't changed, um, except now maybe we do more conversions of sleeves to bypasses or something like that. So since my fellowship, the band has gone away, the sleeves have come um, into the forefront. Of, and, and I'm seeing a bit of a swing now in my practice more towards bypasses. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's going to show the same thing nationally. Um, but there's okay. been sort of a there's been a movement and, and a shifting since my fellowship. And it's really important to stay up to speed on what's, you know, current and best data. Uh, and in all of our fields, you know, that's why these organizations are so important. These conferences, you know, looking at the data presented and reading the journals and the articles so that we're up to speed on what's latest, what's best, what's helping the patients the most, what are the best outcomes that we can achieve is so important, you know? So yes, there's been, there's been a lot of shifting since my fellowship. How has uh, endoscopic uh, bariatrics um, impacted, you know, surgeons and in your practice? 
I think uh, endoscopy is playing a very big role, is very integral to what we do in bariatric surgery and, and in general surgery as well, but certainly bariatric surgery and being, being comfortable with endoscopic skills, being able to use them diagnostically and also therapeutically is so important um, to the bariatric surgeon. And I just see that continuing. Mm -hmm. I think that those skills are going to become even more integral as we move along. Um, and, and just very, very important to keeping up uh, the best outcomes for your patients and patient base. I'm curious about your thoughts on gastroenterologists doing a lot of endoscopic and non quote non surgical procedures, often with not enough data for mm -hmm. long term data. And now we have medical treatments for weight loss. And how is that changing? the patients that you see in the practice that you have? So I work very closely with bariatricians and I think that the medical treatment is, is an added benefit um, in the treatment of obesity. I think it's part of the paradigm along with diet, exercise, working with a nutritionist, um, a psychologist. I think the medications are, are getting better and better. Um, our patients show benefit using them, even, um, before surgery and after surgery. So I utilize them quite well uh, in my practice and uh, maintain that, that um, relationship with a bariatrician. As to the gastroenterologist, you know, when we uh, think back on lap bands, you know, lap bands were being placed without a, sometimes without a program, just place the band and the patient went on their way. And we didn't see good outcomes with that. And I worry about gastroenterology getting involved in obesity treatment if we're not going to have mm -hmm. programs that show that, um, that have shown to have the best outcomes, which is a strong perioperative program that right. follows the patient and their um, outcomes, their nutritional status and others long-term. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, uh, we're going to move off the continent a little bit because uh, one of the topics we definitely <laughs> need to discuss with you is uh, your work with global surgery. Uh, specifically, uh, Pat gave us a little glimpse into your response to the Category 5 hurricane that mm -hmm. hit your Bahamas in 2019. It does sound like you played a very substantial role in the recovery efforts um, and can you share a little bit about that, what happened and how you got involved? That was one of the worst things I remember seeing. You know, I was here in Atlanta watching the reports of the hurricane that was slamming the Bahamas over a period of several days and waves that were 30 feet high, um, you know, just wow, significant yeah. devastation. So I made my way to the Bahamas within a few days. I think within a week of the hurricane, I was on the ground and it was, I've never been a part of the uh, military, but it was like I was in the military. I mean, there was an active runway with planes coming and going and that's where volunteers were moving to the islands to give aid, to give food um, back and forth. And so I arrived with... Um, lots of medical supplies and headed out to the islands to give medical aid. And I hope I never see anything like that again, that level of devastation, you know, 
clinics completely destroyed. The main hospital, 90% destroyed. Um, A tent being used to give medical um, services, even surgical services. Um, It was very difficult. So uh, on my way back, I had made a lot of, um, before I made my way back, actually, I'd made a lot of relationships um, here that really came together to send medical aid to the Bahamas, including mobile clinics, um, equipment, millions of dollars that went down and really helped in a time of need. And uh, coincidentally, six months later, the COVID pandemic hit. And so that wow. equipment, the mobile clinics were then utilized for that as well. Wow. So it made a big that's difference. Great. Yeah. That's great. Hey, that's remarkable. I mean, that's much- just... Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. How much family and friends do you still have in Bahamas? Mm, my parents and my sister and my niece are still there. They were on Nassau, which thankfully was spared. And so I saw them. I saw them for about a few hours before heading out to uh, Freeport, but they were safe. Wow. And you mentioned that it was six months before the beginning of the pandemic. So my, I suspect that the ability to get supplies there uh, really went away in March of 2020. So I, I, th- I can imagine that this big effort prior to was, you know, kept kept the recovery efforts moving along uh, because they clearly weren't fully recovered in six months after such a devastation. Agreed. I mean, th- it was huge to have that equipment on the ground ready to go because um, none of us knew this pandemic was coming. Right. That was a surprise, but they had the equipment on the ground uh, that could be utilized because with hospitals and clinics destroyed, how were they going to take care of patients at that time? That's a silver lining for sure. Mm-hmm. So we also noticed uh, you traveled to Zambia in 2021. Mm-hmm. Is that right? To provide education for minimally invasive surgery. Um, I personally am very... Uh, lucky to know about Kevin's trips to Nigeria and Gabon also to do the same. I really enjoyed his story. And that's be, be, besides the podcast, uh, maybe one day you'll be our guest, Kevin, you can share it for the rest yeah. of us. But um, And maybe one day you'll join uh, Sharon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, for, for your trip. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 I would love to join um, for sure. Whenever uh, you go, we will definitely have one. I'll come and teach them all how to do really amazing hernias because there's a lot of hernias in Africa. Yes. Um, but Shanita, what was the trip like to Africa? And is have you been back? Is that a country that you've been to before? Or sorry, a continent you've been to before? That I've been to South Africa, but I've never been to Zambia. That was my first time. And I went with the College of Surgeons. Uh, with their um, hub. So this is hub number two. They had a previous hub in Ethiopia um, a few That's years right. back. Yes. That's right. So in the name of that, it's a, um, what's the name? Yes. Oasa. Okay. Yeah. And so this is hub number two. So they have 12 institutions around the U.S. that have partnered with the um, University of Zambia, the university teaching hospital to 
partner in quality, research, trauma, education, clinical um, work. And so I went with the clinical and education teams there, and we spent a week um, working with them with simulation, laparoscopy simulation, looking at their equipment and getting ready to come back to help them to build MIS in the country. And so we really were very excited to go and uh, we were received very well. There's a lot of interest there. They worked so hard with us every day on simulation, getting skills ready, um, identifying spaces and resources so that this could continue, not just for the attendings, but also to train the trainees as well. And so we are hoping to head back here shortly. Some of the team are actually going next month and then others right. to follow. And so we will continue going back with just short uh, times in between so that we can build this um, effectively uh, in the country. And it's very, very exciting. Um, they have a research curriculum that's been started that's very strong, um, that's being built uh, with researchers from both Zambia and the US and research projects that will come out of this. So we're very excited to build this collaboration and to move this forward um, for the betterment of the patients and improve patient outcomes. That's fantastic. We're, uh, my family and I are going to be supporting uh, a missionary who grew up in Zambia, who's now going back, mm -hmm. and he is a surgeon now in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, and so I'm definitely going to link you up because one of his goals is to, to build minimally invasive surgery at his hospital. Mm -hmm. in Zambia. And it's actually where he was born. He was born and he grew up there and uh, he's heading back to, to be a surgeon at the hospital where he, he, uh, he grew up. So it's, it's pretty fantastic. So he won't be too far away. Oh, that's um, exciting. Very yeah. Cool. Given, given your, your work with these global task forces and your perspective on your, by your trip, where do you see the state of minimally invasive surgery in Africa? And, uh, you know, where do you see it in, you know, developing over the course of the next five, 10 years, let's say? I think there's definitely forward movement there. We all know the benefits of MIS surgery. You know, um, they're held back by resources and equipment and uh, funds, you know. So if we can get over those hurdles, um, certainly the skills are there, the need is there, the desire is there. Um, to have this really flourish. So I think we're moving in the in the right direction. I think in the next five to 10 years, we will certainly see MIS in every country in Africa. Um, and, yeah, and I think it's it behooves us to do what we can to support that because I, we've seen it work for our patients, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, this is a billion, over a billion uh, individuals uh, on the planet that mm -hmm. are on that continent and such a limited access to um, any surgery. But but certainly when you think of the main disease burdens, uh, this really hits home for, for Sharon is, is such a huge burden of hernia. I mean, yeah, such yeah. a re re really significant hernia burden at it's interesting to, I hope, so I hope that's part of the research because I think that was one of the questions that came up in a number of my trips is like, how, how come, like, what is the, what's the reason? And some of it has to do with the labor, but there's gotta be some other reason that there's such high rates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it may be why we also see it in South America. I've done some, some, uh, life surgeries there. It's 
they're not treated as a child. Right. That, and so that's, the yeah. adult hernias are really childhood yeah. hernias that have just been ignored yeah. until they're they're huge inguinal scrotal hernias. Mm-hmm. This is really awesome. I I I love seeing this. You and Kevin both are doing such great stuff uh, globally. I hope to uh, contribute in Africa one day. Um, I'd like to take this now to another passion of yours, which is some of your work with diversity, equity, and inclusion, what we call DEI. You're definitely on uh, multiple committees and multiple organizations. You co-chair the Diversity Leadership and Professional Development Committee for SAGES. So you definitely have your finger on the pulse. We were there at SAGES uh, 2021, um, where you won the Social Justice and Health Equity Award. So congratulations. Uh, I'd like to personally congratulate you for that. Yeah, that was Uh, awesome. But what are some of the key talking points in those committees? You know, I hope to learn a lot from you at, at this podcast about specifically DI within surgery. I think the one of the key points is making sure that DEI is not a window dressing, but something that's really integrated into the society or the organization and how to do that effectively, which is not always easy. You know, so many places will have a committee or they'll have a mission statement that mentions diversity, equity, and inclusion. But how do we make that part of the values of the organization, something that the members really feel is very important? And I think that's something that SAGES is doing quite well. You know, this uh, committee has been around for some time. And uh, under the leadership of many of our SAGES leaders, uh, Dan Jones, Dana Talem, uh, Dr. Pryor, um, Dr. Silla uh, Qureshi, you know, many folks have really put a lot of time and effort into making sure that this was going to be integral to SAGES. And I remember that first climate survey that came out, I think that was in 2017, that looked at the organization critically and asked the tough questions. Are we making any headway um, with diversity uh, and equity? looking at our leadership, looking at our membership on committees, and that helped us to move the needle forward. We have another survey that's out now, um, or will be out now, another climate survey. And, you know, have we, have we made some progress? You know, that's going to be really important. I will say that committee is a very vibrant committee. There's a lot of uh, movement happening there, lots of initiatives. Um, I think of the fundamentals of leadership program that's come out of there underneath uh, Dr. Jenny Shao. Um, It's a phenomenal program curriculum that's taking you through leadership principles with a diversity um, lens, a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens. We're working on a DEI index, a strategy and leadership manual, um, you know, a gender representation study, many, many initiatives from that uh, committee, which is really, really excellent to see. People are very involved and very engaged. And I think it it goes back to the leadership really supporting the committee as well. So we can feel that SAGES is behind it and uh, behind our our initiatives that we'd like to see. Yes, this is very true. You know, just to uh, comment, several of those names you mentioned have already been guests on SAGES Stories and others are planned to be future guests. And Kevin, a couple of them are hernia surgeons, believe it or not. Amazing. Amazing. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> something I've always admired about Sages is exactly what you say. They are very forward-looking. 
in their agenda and their philosophy. And I feel that they're often first among many societies in implementing certain actions. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe sages may have been the first surgical society that I've been involved with that many years ago actually mandated that there be equity in gender representation on every program. It was intentional. It came straight down from leadership. It was a mandate, no more mantles, right? Men on panels, um, which was a very common situation in our field. And I feel with their role modeling, many other societies saw that it can be done and therefore should be done. So do you have any comments about that specific um, process that, that we have with every program meeting? Yeah, I, I think that is fantastic. And you can really see that when you attend the meeting and when you look back at the data, when you look at the gender representation at the annual meetings, look at the committee membership, you see a, you see quite a bit of diversity and equity there. And I agree with you that SAGES has been at the forefront um, of a lot of things uh, in our surgical field. I, I know that Dr. Silla has quite a few initiatives that she has already begun um, even before her presidency that are really in the forefront of surgery and really will make a difference uh, for our patients and our environment. So I, I agree that um, SAGES has done a lot from the forefront and I think it has to do with the that connection between the membership and leadership through the committees. You know, there's really a free flow of ideas back and forth. Things are brought up to the executive committee uh, and, and information is brought back down to the committees so that they can use that information and move forward or not with it. Um, and That's so a very that, good point. Yeah, that helps. Yes. Yeah, I'd like to follow up on on Sharon's comments. I think as we are improving gender representation in surgery, that the diversity and racial representation still seems to be lagging. Um, it's actually quite disparate, not only at meetings, but also in training programs and even society memberships. What can we learn from you about that? I agree with you, um, but I'm not surprised. You know, when we look at voting rights, women had voting rights before um, people of color did. So I think that's a trend that has happened before, but I think we are moving the needle some ways. We're not moving the, the needle in everything. We're not moving the needle in black men entering medical school. That's still very, very low and still the same as it was in the 1970s. But I think we are moving the needle in societies, especially societies like SAGES, the American College of Surgeons. I do see more diversity and more opportunity. A lot of that has to do with transparency of the organization. And I think SAGES has been very transparent in their recent years on how to become a member of a committee. You know, what is that process like? How do you volunteer to be on a, um, on a panel? The speakers bureau that is now open uh, so that you can put your information forward and be selected as a speaker is very important with helping to push equity. So being very intentional, I think, is, is starting to move the needle. Yes, we're not all the way there, but we're starting to make some headway. Yeah, this is really great. And it's clear from your CV and the journey that you're involved in a lot of the societies and therefore can, can kind of penetrate that uh, each of them. Well, as you know, we are the official podcast of Sages, Kevin and Shanita. I'm wearing my Sages swag. 
yeah stories sweatshirt everyone can buy it online go to the sages.org website um and wear it and flaunt it during our uh, may uh, sorry march meeting in montreal um but on that note how did you get involved in sages what was your story about your first introduction to sages and who introduced you when did you join you know, the person who actually introduced me, and I'm not sure he realizes that he introduced me, is Dan Jones. Really? Uh, it ah. is. I was uh, having a conversation with uh, Phil Shower, and Dan Jones was, I believe, the president-elect of Sages at that time. And in his direct way, he asked me about my involvement in Sages, which at that time I was embarrassed to say was very minimal, except maybe attending the meetings. And he encouraged me to be involved. And so I asked to be on several committees and I've not looked back since. I found it to be a very wonderful, welcoming society. Um, lots of initiatives to become involved in. I'm excited about the direction, the projects that are underway, you know, the vision that's happening. Um, so I have not looked back. So I do need to, at some point, let him know that, um, you know, he was the beginning of this journey and thank you. Wow, Hopefully that's great. Listening. We'll pop that. We'll yeah. pop that in the podcast when he's our guest. How's that? Yes, exactly. Yes. We'll drop that in there for sure. That's awesome. Um, it's also clear, and we've talked about this already, how much you've accomplished in such a short period of time. Uh, I believe you have more letters after your name than any of our previous guests. Uh, <laughs> so, what's what's the next big thing planned for you? What's your next kind of mountain to climb, so to speak? Uh, you know, I've gotten quite involved in sustainable surgery. Mm. And that has- Like uh, green, greening the OR, that type of thing? That's right. Greening the oh, OR, great. reducing our carbon footprint. And, you know, that has a big impact here, but also globally as well. Because you know, uh, some of these uh, lesser developed countries will bear most of the brunt of the mm. climate change that we are experiencing. So uh, that is my next uh, big thing. My um, my next passion is uh, doing what we can in surgery to lessen our carbon footprint, be that by reducing waste, anesthetic gases, um, clean energy. There's lots and lots of ways that we can make an impact um, we we do make a significant impact in our carbon footprint for the health system and the health sector itself has a large carbon footprint uh, when we look uh, overall at climate change. So there's a lot that we can do and need to do. Uh, yeah. I agree. There's so much waste in certain, in mm -hmm. the United States, especially, uh, and waste. It's crazy. I've done life surgeries in like Armenia and the way they handle their products versus what we do and the disposable, non-disposables and what is open versus just available. It's so different. And I'm glad you're doing that. I'm a big fan of decreasing waste. Good. Maybe, maybe you could give us uh, one uh, tip or thing that we should change. Um, the, what, what should we do? Make, you know, obviously we can't hit home runs, but one little win that we could do maybe as surgeons listening? So if we were to, instead of using uh, soap and hand, and hand washing, we were to use our hand sanitizers that we can utilize to scrub into the OR, we would save gallons, gallons of water with just that three to five minute scrub. Oh. That's very easy. 
Very, very easy to do. So we're told to do the first scrub with the with the soap and water, and then second one be the hand sanitizer. Is it okay to just do the hand sanitizer to start? I think. <laughs> think the, I there's think no data the first, right i mean yeah well that's yeah. what they say do the first one with the hands but even yeah. if you do the others just the others yeah. would save we would save gallons and gallons that one's easy led lighting is another one that's very mm -hmm. easy change the lights mm -hmm. in our or mm -hmm. and if you think about it the hvac system in our ors run whether we have a patient in the or or not mm -hmm. you know we're just right. burning the hvac system anyway I yeah, think you those... should uh, start talking to the Joint Commission for some of these. Yeah, these are great oh, tips. Yeah. You gave us three good <laughs> tips. I eat so mess I, when I eat, my hands get so messy from because I'm a bit of a slob. So I, I have oh to God. wash them. Okay. I have to wash. My, I almost have to take a shower again. We'll introduce uh, you to some forks and knives. Oh yeah, see, it's laparoscopy. It's uh, they got to use my, just use the instruments. Yeah, we'll measure your skills with it. Yeah. Um. Okay, uh, there's a question we ask on many of our guests. Uh, it's kind of a fun question. It's not the most fun question. That one's coming up, but That's it's a, kind up. of a fun question. Um, what? Who should we invite on our next show? Oh. Well, it sounds like you already have Dan Jones lined up. Um, I yes. would have said him. And uh, how about uh, Aurora Pryor? Have you asked her? She's already been interviewed. Yeah, yeah. she's she's uh, one of the episodes. One of our favorites, yeah. Hmm. Yawindi Alimi. Okay. Oh, duly great. noted. Yes. Duly noted. That's great. Awesome. Well, thank you. We'll we'll definitely mm -hmm. add add her to that. Yes, she would be great. And our fan favorite segment is mm -hmm. called the We Are the Sages segment. We are the sages. Sing it, everybody. We are the ones who make you cry today, so let's not cheating. Have you had a good time tonight? There's a choice we made. We got a lot more coming. We are dancing, singing lives. It's true. Let's give a big hand for Sages Bari. Give him a big hand. We are. For this segment, we want to hear your favorite Sage's moment so far. Hi. Oh, definitely the sing-off. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so it's my all, first... It's almost always the answer, but Any let's hear specific it. Yeah. one you yeah, remember? Any... Yeah, this was the sing-off in Vegas. And I remember pulling some people onto the stage who had not practiced and said, just follow uh -huh. along with us. It was a lot of fun. Thank you to Aurora for that. that yes, was she's key. <laughs> That's really great. Was that the, the recent one in Vegas where you got the award? Yes, it was. Yes, perfect. Yeah, that so was a we good all one. wore colored boas. It, it was yeah. fun. <laughs> it was like in a very distant area. And then... Yeah. Right? It's like a big yeah. long drive. It was a long yeah. little yeah, it was. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much. We finally pinned down a time to hear your story. And it's it's just oh. an amazing story. So um, how much family do you have in the United States? My uh brother and his family are here in the mm -hmm. city. So I'm almost split half and half. You know, uh people outside the United States don't tend to um, 
live far from their family. United States is very common. Someone will be on the East Coast, another family on the West Coast. And, and you've traveled so much throughout the US, East, West, North, South. Um, how do you handle that cultural change where family is not, you know, your next door neighbor? Yeah. I mean, fortunately, Atlanta is pretty close to the Bahamas. It's just a two-hour flight. So before COVID, I would make that trip mm -hmm. maybe three or four times a year. I also have a really big uh, support network. I have, you know, friends and folks I consider family. Uh, and my brother's family also lives very close as well. So I have a huge support network here. And, and I do travel back quite often uh, to the Bahamas and, and my family travels here also. I'm from a very big extended family as well. Um, mm. So mm -hmm. lots of cousins and aunts and uncles and that's really special. You know, during the pandemic, we had some of these Zoom get togethers and it was fun oh. you know, to try to stay in touch while quarantining and isolating and whatnot, um, doing what we can to you know, keep the communication going and check on folks and, and whatnot. This is also great. Well, Shanita, you've proven that you could be a smiling surgeon yes. and be a chairman at the same time. <laughs> That's not Program an exclusion criteria. Not exclusionary, right? yes. Yeah, yeah they're um, not mutually exclusive, yes. Very inspirational. You've touched so many of us throughout your journey. Thank you for sharing your story. Kevin, has been personally touched with the experience of working with you. And yeah. I'm so glad to get to know you. We've, we communicate before on um, other things. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us. You'll be in Montreal, I assume. I will be. I'm very excited to get there and to see Great. everyone and be involved. And thank you very much for having me. This has been fun. And yes. it's good to see you guys, even if virtually. I look forward to seeing you in person in a for few sure. weeks. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. everyone, please register. We'll see you in Montreal, end of March, beginning of April, 2022. Kevin's answering out. Sorry, definitely 23. In, oh my definitely lord. Definitely in 2023. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, get your Sage's swag. I'm wearing my Sage's Stories sweatshirt. It's really cool. And uh, hope to see you all there. And that wraps up today's episode of Sage's Stories. You can view the show notes for any links to sites we referenced today. Visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at sages underscore updates. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. See you again next time. And remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without sages.